This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Intuition, psychic abilities, messages from spirits or guides, and clairvoyance. The inner knowing we all possess are called various names. Some people believe this inner knowing is some type of supernatural phenomenon. Others think there's no such thing, and it's simply a coincidence when something we predict or believe comes true. This series will not debate this issue, but will point out how extraordinary it is that, on rare occasions, people have helped solve crimes due to their intuition or inner knowing. In this series, Psychic Detectives, I'll share three cases of people who claimed to be psychic and provided details about murders that turned out to be accurate. In one case, the murder victim herself provided details through a psychic to help catch her killer. Whether you believe in psychics or not, these cases are fascinating and may make you at least wonder about the coincidences in these stories. In this first episode, two young girls go missing after a family gathering. The disappearance of two 10-year-olds in Soham, England in 2002 would result in one of the most extensive searches for missing persons in the UK ever conducted. Tips and suspect leads came in from all over the country, and the family would call in a psychic medium to help. The details he predicted about the killer and the crime would be astonishingly accurate. This is Chapter 1 of Psychic Detectives, The Murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. On Monday, August 5, 2002, Dennis McKenzie received a phone call from his friend Leanne. Two little girls, Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells, both 10 years old, had gone missing after a family gathering the day before. Leanne knew the parents of one of the girls, who were frantic to find them. She called Dennis and asked if he could work on the case. Dennis quickly agreed. Luckily, he lived only 20 miles from the town of Soham in East Cambridgeshire and could get there soon to help. He left soon after for the home of Kevin and Nicola Wells, Holly's parents. Dennis McKenzie wasn't in law enforcement, nor was he a private detective. At least, not technically. He was a psychic medium, a person who claims to receive messages from spirits. A medium is said to use psychic abilities to pick up on energies that help them see or hear information about past, present, and future events. Dennis claims that since he was a toddler, he could see and hear things that others could not. As a child, he told his parents about these visits from spirits, but they chalked it up to the unbridled imagination of a toddler who invented imaginary friends. As he got older, Dennis said he heard these inner voices constantly and was afraid he had a mental illness. He stopped sharing these experiences with others, afraid they would think he was crazy. It wasn't until he was in his 40s that he began admitting his lifelong relationship with spirits who'd crossed over to a few trusted friends. He was encouraged by one such person to meet with a local psychic. Upon entering the woman's home, she began asking him pointed questions before he'd said a word. 
You see spirits, don't you? she asked. He admitted he did. She wondered if he heard them talking to him in his mind, and he responded. Yes, but doesn't everyone? The woman laughed and told him he had a special gift and would use it to help others. When Dennis was 46, he began offering his services as a psychic. Two years later, he was called on to help find Holly and Jessica. It was around noon on Sunday, August 4, 2002. Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells were best friends and were excited to spend the day together as only 10-year-old girls can be. Holly's parents, Kevin and Nicola, were hosting a barbecue at their home in Soham. Holly and Jessica attended St. Andrew's Primary School together and were inseparable. The girls spent the afternoon playing together that Sunday in Holly's room. They both changed into football shirts, replicas of the ones the players on their favorite team, Manchester United, wore. Holly's mother took a photo of them wearing the shirts just before the family sat down to dinner at about 5 p.m. About an hour later, while the adults were still eating and socializing, the girls went upstairs to Holly's room. It was after 8 p.m. when Nicola Wells called the girls downstairs to say goodbye. But the girls were no longer upstairs. A quick search around the property yielded no results. An examination of the surrounding area soon grew into a widespread hunt. Still, there was no sign of either Holly or Jessica. A missing persons report was called in to the police just before 10 p.m. The photo Nicola Wells had taken of the girls just two hours before they went missing was circulated to patrol units. Both of the girls were four foot six inches tall and slender. Jessica had shoulder-length brown hair, and Holly's hair was blonde. Investigators discovered that their bright red Manchester United shirts made them easily recognizable on CCTV footage reviewed by police. The girls were last recorded at about 6.30 p.m., arriving at a local sports center. It appeared they left Holly's home together on foot without informing anyone. They made the short walk to the sports center where they purchased snacks from a vending machine. After that, they seemed to vanish into thin air. An extensive search was conducted, with over 400 officers, hundreds of local volunteers, and later soldiers from a nearby U.S. airbase supporting the search effort. Registered sex offenders across the country were interviewed, and their alibis were investigated. The disappearance of Holly and Jessica became national news. Still, the police came up empty, and the girls remained missing. From the moment they first disappeared, the girls' parents were frantic with worry, as any parent would be. They knew neither would stay away voluntarily. They were both good girls, sweet and obedient, but also cautious of strangers. The best they could hope for was that the girls had gotten injured or lost and couldn't return home without assistance. The other, more frightening explanation was that they had been kidnapped. They couldn't bring themselves to imagine anything worse. The day after they went missing, desperate to help in any way she could, Kevin Wells' sister-in-law called psychic Dennis McKenzie to see if he could provide Holly's parents with any information. He quickly agreed and asked Leanne to bring him an item belonging to one of the girls. Dennis McKenzie describes his psychic abilities in his 2009 book, Being the Soham Psychic, this way. Quote, I can hear spirits. This is known as clairaudience. I can see spirits, clairvoyance, and empathize and feel with spirits, clairsentience, which means clear feeling. 
All this happens at the same time. Then I interpret the information, end quote. He also explains that he receives messages from his spirit guides, including a German woman named Jagna. Jagna is not someone Dennis knew in life. He says she is a spirit who has been communicating with him since he was seven years old. Once Dennis met with Leanne and held some of Holly's possessions in his hands, in order to make a good connection with the spirit world, Dennis explains, he heard Jagna's voice bluntly state, They're dead. He didn't reveal this information to Leanne, but asked if he could meet with Holly's parents. He told Leanne that a red vehicle was involved in the information he was picking up about the girls, but it would be best to meet with her parents in order to pick up on more detailed messages. Kevin Wells was willing to do anything to bring his daughter and her friend home. He agreed to meet with Dennis the following day. Jessica's parents, Leslie and Sharon Chapman, declined to meet with Dennis, but he didn't believe this would hinder his ability to intuit information about the girls. Dennis drove to Soham to meet with the Wellses. As he walked into the home, his heart was heavy, knowing he was just about to shatter any remaining hope they had to bring their daughter home. As he sat across from the couple, he asked them how blunt they wanted him to be. Kevin Wells swallowed hard and answered that they wanted Dennis to be completely honest with them. He told them that the girls were dead. Nicola began to cry while Kevin froze, no words forming at first. Then he asked, Are you sure? Dennis said he was so sorry, but yes, he was sure. He said his spirit guide Jagna had provided the details, and she was never wrong. She had said that both of the girls died before 7.30 on Sunday evening, less than an hour after they were last seen in town. He described other details that he saw in his mind's eye. There were two people involved, a male and a female. The woman was shrew-like in appearance, with brownish hair. The man was in his mid-thirties with short, dark hair. He was not a smart man, but, quote, had a swagger about him, Dennis said. He could hear the voices which he described as northern accents. He believed this might indicate that these people were from York or Manchester, but he couldn't pinpoint it more accurately than northern. Dennis also described a car, an older model Ford Fiesta, red in color. He said it was in this car that the girls' bodies had been transported out of Soham after they'd been killed. He further described that their bodies had been wrapped inside of something, perhaps a rug. He was even able to describe the house where the girls died. He saw water, a ditch, that ran adjacent to the home. He also saw a tall structure or building, maybe a windmill near the house. Kevin Wells passed this information on to investigators, but they did not ask to speak to Dennis McKenzie or follow up on the information he provided in his psychic messages. Police received and followed up on hundreds of leads. There were several possible sightings of the girls in the days following their disappearance. Friends, neighbors, and even relatives reported people they knew who seemed suspicious. Every tip, save the psychic kind, was investigated. Still almost two weeks passed with no solid leads. On August 17th, 13 days after Holly and Jessica vanished, a gamekeeper discovered their bodies. They were lying side by side in a deep irrigation ditch, 600 yards off a road, 
about 25 minutes northeast of Soham. The Cambridgeshire police announced the sad news to the public. The bodies were almost certainly those of Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells. A few days later, their identities were confirmed through DNA testing. The girls had been missing for 13 days, and investigators believed they had been killed in another location before their bodies were moved to the area where they were found. They believed that this had been done within 24 hours of their death. The remains had been exposed to the elements for almost two weeks, and the advanced state of decomposition made it difficult to pinpoint with 100% accuracy how they had died. The county coroner stated that the most likely cause of death had been asphyxiation. The area of the last known sighting of the girls had been thoroughly canvassed. Police conducted a house-by-house search along a footpath leading from the sports center back to the Wells' home. A few witnesses recalled seeing the two little girls walking arm-in-arm, wearing bright red football jerseys. One residence the girls would have passed on their route home was that of 28-year-old Ian Huntley. Huntley was questioned by investigators just hours after the search began. A senior caretaker at a local secondary school, Huntley claimed he'd spoken with the girls just before their disappearance. He said they'd come to his door asking to speak with his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, who lived with him. The girls knew Maxine, who was employed as a teaching assistant at the primary school they attended. He said he told the girls Maxine was in the bath at the time. They thanked him, said goodbye, and left, according to Huntley. The officer who questioned him thought Huntley appeared agitated. He asked if he could take a look inside his home, and Huntley agreed. The officer later reported that the house was spotless. Investigators would list Huntley as a strong suspect, but the girls were still missing at that time, and they had nothing to go on. It was just a theory. Ian Huntley's actions caused him to be looked at even more closely by investigators in the following days. He inserted himself into the investigation of the missing girls by giving interviews to several news organizations. Stating that he was possibly the last person to see the girls before they went missing became an important detail to what quickly became a media circus around their disappearance. Huntley capitalized on his 15 minutes of fame by proffering himself as a spokesperson for the community of Soham. During several interviews, he put forward his own theories, expressed frustration at the lack of progress in finding the girls, and became teary-eyed on occasion. Huntley's girlfriend, Maxine Carr, was also interviewed. She worked at the girls' school and described them in detail to reporters. She also shared past conversations she'd had with the girls as if they were well acquainted. In one interview with reporters, Maxine spoke of Holly Wells in the past tense. She was just lovely, really lovely, she said. Huntley made sure to keep in touch with the officers about updates on the case. He asked pointed and suspicious questions, like how long DNA evidence could be detected before deteriorating. Police continued to visit Huntley with additional questions. I'm picturing the just-one-more-question strategy used by Inspector Colombo from the detective series of old. If you're old enough, you know what I'm referring to. Each time they visited, he looked worse, as if he were not sleeping and under a great deal of stress. At one point, Huntley snapped and blurted out, You think I've done it! I was the last person to see them! And then began to sob. Uh, done what exactly, Ian? Way to play it cool. But I digress. On August 16th, Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr were formally interviewed by police. Huntley was asked to explain scratches police observed on his face. He claimed his dog had scratched him. He was also asked about his past police record, 
which had been discovered in the course of their investigation. Ian Huntley had recently moved to Soham, but had spent the majority of his life to the north in Grimsby, Lincolnshire. He'd had several relationships with young girls between 15 and 16 years of age when he was 21 and 22 years old. One 15-year-old became pregnant by Huntley. He had been reported to police for having sex with girls under the age of consent, but the charges went no further when the girls or their parents refused to press charges. Hoping to avoid gossip, the teenage mother of his child also kept silent and moved away from the area. But gossip, as we know, is difficult to avoid, especially in a small town. Community members shunned Huntley. He was verbally attacked and threatened over his interest in underage girls. Two years later, he was investigated when, in two separate incidents, women, both 18, reported being raped and identified Huntley as their attacker. He claimed the sex was consensual. One of the women said Huntley had threatened to kill her. He spent one week behind bars, but the charges were dropped when prosecutors stated that there was insufficient evidence for a conviction. In 1997, Huntley was investigated for the rape of an 11-year-old girl. The terrified child waited months to tell her mother. When she finally did, she said Huntley had threatened to kill her if she told anyone. The police declined to charge Huntley as the only evidence they had was the statement of an 11-year-old. In 1999, Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr met and moved in together. They became engaged that year. Their relationship was volatile, with both reportedly having affairs. They frequently argued, and Huntley was reportedly controlling and physically abusive towards Maxine. She left him several times, but he always persuaded her to return. Huntley's father had been a school caretaker, and he encouraged his son to apply for a vacancy at Soham Village College. Huntley was hired on as the caretaker in September 2001. He was concerned about the school looking into his criminal background and disqualifying him from the position, so he applied under the alias Ian Nixon. He needn't have bothered. No background check was conducted. He and Maxine moved to Soham, and she found a part-time position at St. Andrew's Primary School as a teaching assistant. Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman were two of the students in the Year 5 class to which she was assigned. The weekend that Holly and Jessica went missing, Maxine had left town to visit her mother. The morning the girls disappeared, Huntley called her but got no response. She didn't return his phone call until after 6 p.m. They got into an argument, and Huntley became enraged when he learned Maxine was going to a nightclub that evening. He angrily hung up the phone, and just moments later, the girls had arrived at his door. Investigators pressed him on the lie both he and Maxine had told about her being home in the bath that evening. While they were being interviewed, officers conducted a search of their home. Every room of the house appeared to have been cleaned thoroughly. The scent of a strong cleaning agent permeated the residence. Huntley's place of employment was also searched, as were the school's grounds. Police found what remained of the girls' red Manchester United jerseys in a trash bin inside a supply warehouse on the grounds. Huntley's fingerprints were found on the bin. His car, a red Ford Fiesta, was searched as well. It had also been cleaned. A cover from the rear seat, as well as the lining of the trunk, or boot, had been removed. Huntley was arrested on suspicion of abduction and murder. Maxine Carr was charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice, or obstruction as it's called in the U.S., Huntley refused to answer questions and began acting confused. His odd behavior escalated, 
and investigators believed he was attempting to appear mentally ill as a pretrial strategy. He was admitted to a hospital for psychological evaluation. But his girlfriend decided to sing. Maxine Carr confessed that she lied about being home the day the girls disappeared in order to support Huntley's alibi. She told investigators that he'd called her and said he'd seen the girls just before they went missing. The thing is, Maxine, they came in our house, she said Huntley had told her. He said he'd been falsely accused in the past, which had caused him to have a nervous breakdown. He convinced Maxine if she didn't support his alibi, he would surely become a suspect in the girls' disappearance. The day after Huntley and Carr's arrest, the bodies of the girls were discovered. Investigators returned to Maxine to inform her of this, as well as the evidence they'd found the girl's clothing in a bin at Huntley's workplace, and his fingerprint. She refused to believe her fiancé had anything to do with the girl's murders and continued to support him. Thank you for listening. One other way you can support the show is by becoming a Patreon member. For as little as $2 per month, You can get all new episodes of Once Upon a Crime ad-free and hear them before anyone else. Patrons are OUAC superfans, and we show our appreciation for your support by giving you bonus episodes you can't hear anywhere else, as well as exclusive OUAC merchandise sent to you as a thank you. To find out more and join, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. There's also a link on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Thank you so much. Ian Huntley remained under observation at Rampton Secure Hospital for two weeks. A forensic psychiatrist found him mentally competent to stand trial and stated that although he'd classify him as psychopathic, Huntley was not clinically mentally ill. In June 2003, Huntley pled not guilty to the murder charges. Maxine Carr pled not guilty to the charges of attempting to pervert justice and assisting an offender. At trial, Huntley took the stand in his own defense. He now admitted the girls had died in his house, but claimed it was accidental. He said the girls had been passing by his house when Holly Wells' nose began to bleed. They knocked on his door asking for assistance. He'd walked them both into the bathroom where Holly had slipped and fallen into an already filled bathtub. He had panicked and froze, and Holly had drowned. Jessica, witnessing this, began to scream, You pushed her! He'd tried to calm her down, but when she continued screaming, Huntley said he'd put his hands over her mouth and accidentally suffocated her. What a load of horse shit. But I digress again. I can't even go into the details of all the silly lies he told the court. It just suffices to say that nobody bought it. Instead, let me take you back to how psychic Dennis McKenzie's predictions directly coincided with what would be the prosecution's theory and evidence of the murders. The prosecutor described for the jury how the girls had happened to walk by Ian Huntley's house on a day when his girlfriend was out of town. He'd just gotten into a heated argument with her moments earlier, when he spied the girls outside in their bright red jerseys. They said Huntley had lured them into his home at approximately 6.37 p.m. and that they'd been killed shortly after. Dennis McKenzie said that his spirit guide, Jagna, accurately told him that the girls had died before 7.30 p.m. He'd also said that a man and woman were involved. The man was in his mid-thirties. Huntley was 28 but appeared older, with short dark hair, he'd predicted. 
Ian Huntley wore his dark hair closely cropped. The woman was shrew-like with brown hair, as Mackenzie described. Maxine's hair was auburn, and she wears it short. She is petite with small dark eyes. Mackenzie also described their accents as northern, which was accurate as they both hailed from Lincolnshire in northeastern England. Investigators believe that within 12 hours of their deaths, Huntley put the girls' bodies in the trunk of his red Ford Fiesta to move them to another location, precisely as Mackenzie had envisioned, even down to the color, make, and model of the car. He had accurately described how a ditch ran adjacent to the home where the girls were killed. Mackenzie intuited that the girls had been wrapped in something, maybe a carpet. The carpet lining of the Ford Fiesta was missing. One or both of the girls may have been wrapped in it before their bodies were dumped in shallow water near the airbase. There had also been an attempt to burn the bodies to destroy evidence. The prosecutor addressed the jury in his closing statement, saying, quote, We invite you to reject the accounts of both deaths being accidental as desperate lies, the only way out for Ian Huntley. We suggest that this whole business in the house was motivated by something sexual, but whatever he initiated plainly went wrong. Therefore, in this ruthless man's mind, both girls had to die in his own selfish self-interest, end quote. After four days, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. Ian Huntley was later sentenced to 40 years in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until 2042 when he is 68. The judge stated, The order I make offers little or no hope of the defendant's eventual release. He believes Huntley will never be granted parole. Let's hope he's correct. Maxine Carr pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice and not guilty of assisting an offender. She was sentenced to serve three and a half years in prison. She was released after 21 months and provided with a new identity to protect her from threats from the public. Huntley has been repeatedly attacked in prison by other inmates. He launched a claim against HM Prison Wakefield for damages. He attempted to overdose on antidepressants in 2006, but survived. In 2007, Huntley confessed to the charge for which he was previously investigated, the rape of the 11-year-old girl in 1997. Dennis McKenzie has been called to assist in other investigations over the years, including the search for the BTK serial killer. While he gave details of the BTK murders, some never before made known to the public, and gave his impressions of the killer, it was good old detective work that identified Dennis Rader a year later. Mackenzie does not charge for his assistance in criminal investigations. Hollywell's father, Kevin, believes that Dennis McKenzie is, quote, the genuine article. Numerous people have asked the psychic to use his skills to investigate the Madeline McCann case, but he has declined. It's against my principles to do so without being expressly asked by the parents, he explains. Dennis McKenzie published his autobiography in 2009, titled Being the Soham Psychic, The Man Who Talks to the Other Side. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. So what do you think? Do you believe in psychics? Can they be valuable in helping in police investigations? Let us know your thoughts about this case or any others we've covered by connecting with us on social media. You can join our Facebook group to interact with us. Look for the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page or grab the link in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is research written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. 
Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>